Robert. How you doing, sir? Good. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm hanging in there. I've been here all day editing, and um, my, my friend, um, <laughs> Mike, the other Mike, Mike Went, he's doing mm -hmm. a documentary on me. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's documenting this whole thing. He may want to interview you also, since we have this weird history together. So I'm going to put some more light on you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd love, you know, I'd, I'd be down to do it. How's that, how's that documentary coming along? How's it coming along, Mike? It's, it's coming, uh, hi, uh, it's, it's coming along very Hello. well. Uh, you know, we are, we're basically, uh, we're, we're far, we're far along with the edit, but I think COVID has kind of added an extra element to the story. Uh, and, you know, Robert, you know, has had to make some adjustments of, of uh, editing paper shadows. So we've, we've just kind of started uh, filming as much, much other stuff as we can, just because, you know, COVID really, I think, uh, added this extra element that we anticipated. So sure, it's, yeah. uh, it, it's been evolving and going, going pretty well. That's Literally, great. he just nailed it. I'm just plugging this light in. <laughs> Don't mind me. Okay, let's see if this works. We shouldn't have gotten in touch sooner. I feel like I have tapes of you working, Robert, from years and years and years ago. You do? Video? Yeah, it's probably like mini DV. I could, oh, I could, I could sort of, I'm, I'm sure I still have it. I would just have to dig through some other stuff that never got released, but yeah. I, I didn't even know that. Mm -mm. Did not know that. Okay, yeah. No, whatever you got, yeah, bring it on, sure. Yeah. Go for it. I mean, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't even think it's from the time we tried to make, or we did make that music video. Oh, wasn't there some behind the scenes stuff for that, for the music video? Uh, yeah, because that was incorporated in the video. But okay. I mean, I, I think a separate time I came up and filmed you working for a day, maybe. I totally. It's. <laughs> I, I vaguely hey, when, when I wasted when I wasted like, that money on that uh, Canon XL one, I made sure to use it uh every damn day <laughs> oh well there was the um the wedding that we did remember karen st john vincent's wedding <laughs> i do yeah i do yeah that was interesting you still have that footage <laughs> um yeah it's probably under everything else yeah no that I, was... I ended up shooting i was a wedding videographer for a very short period of my life and i realized that is not the route i want to go down i totally agree by the way, just to bring that up about the uh, video, that wedding. Remember when the uh, the wedding planner was arguing with the one musician? Uh -huh. you shot that? They didn't know you shot it? Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I shouldn't laugh about this. It's not funny. But that um, <laughs> the musician that he was arguing with, you know, he's in jail. He's oh, doing really? He's doing 16 years in jail. Maybe more than that. Oh, geez. That sounds for, like for what? How would you call it? He was he was a music teacher, him and his wife, and he was apparently involved with some of his um, students. And these mm. are like t teenage girls. Mm. One day I heard about this to Karen, which by the way, I, well, I'll tell you about that in a minute. <laughs> mm -hmm. But no, apparently, uh, yeah, he um, got convicted. It was on the news, it was all on the news. And it, <laughs> and it was like a shock. If you Google it, it's gonna, it still will pop up. So yeah. it was kind of a surprise. But yeah, he's doing time. I think he's doing at least 16 years, maybe more than that so-and-so but yeah um but it was on the news and all the girls confronted him in court and said you know they're never this is before the whole me too movement sure yeah so but anyway yeah i just thought wow you got that, <laughs> got that video of arguing with um 
um, Julian, the wedding planner, they were arguing. So anyway, so well, yeah. we can start the interview. I just <laughs> no, no, I, I totally remember. I, I I didn't remember it until you just brought it up, but I, I totally, it totally jogs the memory. Yeah, that was that was one for the books. <laughs> I'm even trying to think of when that was. Also, how long we've known each I, known each other since '99? Is that correct? Well, that's what I was trying to tell Mike. I think it was either '99 or 2000, because yeah. the class you were in that was. I want to say it was my fourth class. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, because I always like telling the story because I dropped out of Kent State and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And I had the Cleveland, uh, what's the free, what's the inter- independent paper? The scene? The free times? The free scene or the free times? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was the scene. Mm-hmm. I remember opening it up and there were, there were two advertisements. One of them was learn filmmaking from CIA. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And right underneath it, was uh study at second city and i was like ah and i didn't have any money but i could afford one of them and i was like uh it was like a real like fork in the road and i was like i, I was like i can always come back to comedy or, or do it you know well you've, you've more than done that I, I did not know that that's interesting right yeah. <laughs> that is funny you chose me over Second City. That's it. I did. I sure that, did. That was that Second City, or was that um, Cabaret Dada? Because yeah, that, yeah, we had both of those back then. And it and it, and it, cl- it tanked in a closed shop before I could get back get right back around to it. Really? Okay. Yeah, I don't think it was. I don't think it was over like two years, maybe. Yeah, it, that lasted. That was very short. Yeah, because mm. Cabaret Dada, they stayed. They they were around for a while, and um, and then they finally unfolded. But that they were around for like maybe ten years, 10, 12 years. Yeah, so it's been a long time since we've known each other. And finally, I get to watch a feature film of yours. So you saw it how many times? You watched it twice, right? I watched it twice, time. yeah. Very, very oh, much yes. enjoyed it. Um, very much Robert Banks. It's what I, you know, it's what I, what I sort of expected. It was, it, oh, okay. you know, I mean that in a good way. So when you say Robert Banks, what does that mean? Because I'm trying to get people to explain to me. When they see something, they say it's very Robert Banksy. What does that mean? I'm just curious. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, because there are a lot of sure. Robert Banks elements, but you know, some people have pinpointed several things. I guess it is kind of something I like. But I don't know. But go for it. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna say, you know, you're couching a lot of ideas in visuals, right? Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, I think the movie there's not even a line of dialogue for the first two to three minutes, right? Yeah, there's very little dialogue. The first, yeah, the first half hour alone, there's maybe like ten lines of dialogue, if that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's preoccupations with, I think, like creating art yeah. is a big one for you. Yeah. And creating art within time constraints. Mm-hmm. I, feel like, I feel like I've seen that a lot in your work of just like, you only have so much time here. We're only, you know, like it's very finite. So what are we yeah, doing? That, that's exactly, that's, you, you said it right. So you're getting that right. <laughs> and um, it's funny you mentioned that too. Um, there's the element of the underdog also. Sure, yeah. The person that's up against the system, which is, you know, that's, kind of, that's another signature. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what I enjoyed, just to get right into it, was, um, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's sort of against the system in the movie. And yeah. I feel like the movie's very autobiographical for you. It, it, it is semi. In fact, myself and actually three other people that I know, um, and 
one of them sadly passed away because the main character, Pam, she's based on a friend of mine and a person I've worked with for many years. Mm -hmm. um, her name was Lynn Soleil. And mm -hmm. she was a um, great artist, painter, photographer, draftsman. She was amazing. But she never got her due at all. But she stuck to her guns. But she was a hippie chick. And she, she was that way till the day she died. Mm -hmm. um, total hippie chick. Rode a bike everywhere, wore glasses. She wore her, you know, hippie clothes. And she was always wearing, you know. And back when she was in college, she went to Kent State, actually. Mm. She was tight with Diva before they became big. She was close with Mark's Mother's Ball, Gerald Casale. Those were all her buddies. She knew all those guys. And she was there. Everybody thought her and Mark Mother's Ball were dating, and they weren't. They were just close friends. But everybody thought they were an item. But she was close friends with them. She actually knew, hung out with Chrissy Hyde a lot before the Pretender days. Okay. Her and Chrissy Hyde got topless at a party once. She said, well, we're, we're you know, guys that walk around with no shirts. We can do it, too. So they both got topless, and nobody bothered them. And, and um and she she knew uh Joe Walsh, she knew the whole James gang. She was tight with all these guys. So she was a oh, wow. she was a hippie chick, but she wasn't she wasn't a, a groupie, not like that. She was just people liked and respected her because of her ideas, her morals. She was a vegetarian. I mean, really sweet, great person. And um and she could draw like she was amazing. She could draw, but she was dedicated to that. But she never got the uh, respect that she, I thought, was due to. She, she should have been in major museums and galleries, and she just never, she, she got all that after she passed away, which kind of pisses me off. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> in fact, there's a scene in the very beginning. Remember when um, Pam is walking down the corridor to got the car, get, get her um, cards because she had her paperwork? Yeah. Those are Lynn's drawings on the wall. Okay. That, the law firm that let us shoot, they bought some of her artwork. And it's displayed in that in that in, the, in their um, corridors, yeah. which was ironic because I didn't know that until we were scouting the location. As soon as I saw it, I'm thinking, "Oh man, this was meant to happen." It blew me away. So that was like her little cameo in the film. And we do hear her in the edit that we're working on now, the 35 millimeter edit. We're adding some elements that's that's not in the digital version, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But one of the elements that we're adding is her. Um, there's a scene that Lynn was supposed to be in. I actually filmed her class for this film, okay. but the lighting just just didn't work and the footage was unusable, but her audio is great. She was mic'd, I had a wireless microphone on her and while she was teaching, giving lessons, talking about the anatomy, talking about totality and structure and great shape, all that's in there. So we're gonna pepper that throughout the film in terms of the ambient noise in the background. You're gonna hear her voice and everything. So that's one of the elements that we didn't put in this version, but this 35 millimeter version is gonna be a little longer and a little bit more abstract, non-linear, but not for the sake of it, because that's what the film was supposed to be. The version you saw is good though. I just, it mm -hmm. needs to be a little bit more spiced up a little bit. Now will both of these versions live on their own? There's gonna be two versions. There's gonna be the 35 millimeter and there's gonna be the digital version. But for me personally, the 35 is gonna be the definitive version because yeah. that's what the film was really meant to be. But um, for the festival circuit, a lot of my friends were telling me, make the film shorter and don't really, you know, just keep it simple, make it enjoyable, but just keep it on the radar of um, 80 minutes. And so that's what that version is. We made it shorter. Hmm. But this other version is going to be a little longer, even though we're going to have the option. If you want to run it as a shorter cut, you'll be able to take out the um, second to the last reel and just show it with the four reels, and the film will be complete regardless. It'll be basically the same version you saw. Yeah. But we're adding an extra um, 16 minutes of stuff that ties into other elements throughout the film. So, Isn't it interesting in the age of digital technology and how easy it is to cut and drop and... Yeah. Add and subtract. We're not seeing like multiple. I, I sort of had this, I had a film that we were trying to get off the ground and I think I killed it by saying like, yeah, and I'll just cut like different versions and we'll kind of sprinkle them here and there. 
and they right. sort of looked at me but i was like the movie not to get into it but i mean it lent itself to like we could go uh multiple directions with this no you're right and that's the temptation of digital editing you can do whatever you want however you want it but with film you really want to work towards a complete finite pro project that's going to stick to the way it is and and that was if i had to say any minor criticisms to the digital edits of the film it was just all these possibilities and that's why i'm thinking you know what this wasn't meant to be re-edited seven times this was meant to be one thing because the film should have been finished on film from day one but you know say, I, I like the possibilities well no that's great i know you do and a lot of other people do it's just you know i mean when i have an idea i prefer to keep it the way it is that's why it's annoying that we're trying to replicate the, the digital edit but still make it a little bit more with volume in terms of the dimensions what's going on with the characters and the 35 millimeter we're getting that. I mean, though, it's in the digital version too. I mean, more than half this version is the same thing. It's just that um, I just want this to be it. One thing that, and we, and we can get into this even more because uh, I got some questions lined up. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. But it had been so long. I mean, I really can't even place the last time I watched a film that is like yours, that is like, no, we're just going to be in this environment for a minute. Right. And I don't have to drop plot points and i don't have to drop uh you know who is this person like you'll find out yeah exactly trust yeah. me you'll find out you'll you'll find out that it's a character and what they want and desire and whatever conflict uh, so to speak um it's it's very interesting it's like i because you fall under the term uh, experimental film and the, well, that's just something that's not even yeah you know, explain it like when I try to pitch this <clears throat> to Spin. I mean, it's a Spin magazine. You know, I mean, it's not like there aren't artistic-minded people here. And I was like, yeah, I mean, this this is why I want to do it because this this doesn't get made anymore on a variety of levels. Like, this is a handmade film. Would you say? Yeah, you're you're not the first person to say that. A lot of people that reviewed it, they say the same. They're saying nobody makes this kind of stuff anymore. And on top of that, it's literally like you said, handmade or in a other sense. It was, it's true underground cinema in terms of that. Because I didn't set out to make an experimental film. I just wanted to make an essay and I wanted to use elements of nonlinear aesthetic in the essay without having a plot and everything. And at the same time, a lot of people were just saying, well, nobody makes films like that anymore. So everything you just said right there. Yeah, it's, I, mean, it's, 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 it's I got bad news for you. If you say any of those words at the Netflix office, you know, they, they validate well, your parking and show you the door. Well, it's, <laughs> but no, unless of course you're a named director though, which is, such BS. If you're if we, if, yeah, sure, if you're David Lynch, you know, yeah, exactly. talking to a monkey. A lot of people, when this first screened, people kept making David Lynch comparisons. I kept saying, this has nothing to do with David Lynch. I wasn't even thinking David Lynch when I made This is nothing about David Lynch. But people that don't know any better immediately were saying, oh, black and white, you know, weird ethereal sounds, and it's, it's transgressive. It's David. I was like, no, that's, there's people long before David Lynch that was doing this. And I was into this before I even was into David Lynch when I was in high school. So it's like, but unfortunately, that's mainstream Netflix, Apple, corporate, whatever you want to call it. You know, they're they're going to make that judgment. So, so yeah. Well, who? Well, who was? Let you know. Let's let's enlighten some people. Who was before David Lynch? Who who are we talking about? You got Igmar Bergman. Sure. You got you got um to some degree you have Toby Hooper. <laughs> if you ever see some of Toby Hooper's earlier films, his shorts, no, uh, apparently yeah, yeah. Um, well, even you know it's funny we we're talking about this um. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, good example. Mm -hmm. In many ways, that's a David Lynch movie. In, in yeah. many ways, 
if you take out the, the murder killer aspect of it, it's very David Lynch. And I read articles with Toby Hooper talking about how this film was meant to be a dark comedy. The horror element was there, but it was basically a dysfunctional group of characters that get mixed up with these characters that are straight characters and they have an agenda they're trying to meet because you know they, they're just so dysfunctional and they're out of touch with reality. That's what the film is. They, and they, all that Ed Gein stuff was added later to promote the film. That's what, the, you know, if, if right. David Lynch would have made that film and called it, you know, The Sawyer Family Chronicles, directed Chainsaw. by David Lynch, and said, yeah, it takes a chainsaw and left out the chain chainsaws up, I guarantee you, everybody would be like, oh, he's such a genius. It's like, no, it's, you know, but that's one example. Um, oh, who else? Oh, there's other, there's other filmmakers from the, um, the 40s I'm thinking of. Mainly, these are mainly foreign directors, though. I mean, I don't, I don't, I want to say that I'm sure there were some American directors. I mean, if you want to put some like Maya Darren in there, you could say her right, as yeah. far as American directors. Sure. Um, and of course, these are mainly shorts. You wouldn't see too many features made like that. Right. But there I mean, were a lot of films. The, the, the features you know, yeah, that would have Jack, been made like this are. Jack Smith, you got yeah. some of Orson Welles' stuff, you know. Um, even, um, oh, um, what's his name? Um, Robert Downey Jr., I mean, Sr., you know. I know, I wrote, I wrote down, I felt like you had a Putney Swope moment there. Oh. When uh, the tarot card reader came in, Putney Swope, I guess you could say, was an inspiration for this film. Yeah, you could say that. It's a, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, no, that's my favorite. In fact, I don't know if you, the, um, there was like a little um, description for the film that I had, and I had a list of all the directors that I that I blatantly admitted that was inspiration for this. And Robert Downey Sr. was in there. Um, Pasolini was in there. Of course, Godard, Orson Welles, Cassavetes, William Greaves. Sure. Love and Matt Peebles, you know, but there was no David Lynch. <laughs> Even though, I, you know, I, I love David Lynch, but there was no inspiration from him in this at all. All, so, all yeah. of whom would never get a movie made today. So, but uh, let's... You just, you, thank you. You just said that. Yeah. <laughs> give me, give me like a, as I, as I say out here, give me like an elevator pitch of Paper Shadows. An what elevator I, pitch of Paper Shadows. An, an elevator, yeah. I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be Tommy Studio Head. That's very LA. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. All right, let's say, for instance, hey, I have an idea for a film. There's no plot. However, you get to see some cute girls, some okay. naked people. You get some cool music, some really abstract, funky, trippy music. You can actually just light a joint and just indulge yourself in this film. But the film also has a message about gender, race, class, and um, age, and bonding of characters, and fighting the power, and fighting the system. But at the same time, we want <laughs> the audience to be in submerge themselves with traditional rich cinema in the vein of the uh, German Expressionists. What do you say? <laughs> you know what? I think that actually would do pretty well. Well, there you go. So that's basically what the film is. I know it is, I, but yeah. I'm saying like the way you, uh, that's, a, that's a great, that was a great pitch. The little bit of criticism I've gotten from the film so far, literally it's been a little bit, is because of the nudity. People question why is that? Well, one friend of mine, she was really, saying, well, why do you need shock value? And I'm like, what's shock value? She's like, you got naked people. I said, they're life drawing models. There's, there's no shock value at all. All that stuff you saw there, I did in real life. And I set those poses up in the film too. That's all, the girl being drawn by all the black guys in the black suits and they're moving around. I've done that. <laughs> I've yeah. actually done that many times. You're naked, they put you in an environment and they follow you around and then you hold the pose. And some of them will try and take the pose and some of them will try to draw you. Then 20 seconds later, you move around again. I actually did that many times. And um, things like that. I mean, a lot of people came out and said they've never seen something like that before. I'm just thinking, well, there's a lot of things that go into the creative um, institutions or the creative environments that are very disciplinary as well as very, um, um, what's the word I want? 
there's just means of creativity that you can't do in an academic sense that require a little bit of exploration of who you are as a person and in an environment that's really considered, you know, academic or formal or, you know, whatever. And the idea was to try and merge that in a way that was very visual in a way that, because people talk about it in a very, very metaphoric way or whatever, but I want to do it in a way that was like, okay, you got a bunch of black men in suits that are learning to be, learning the fundamentals of the anatomy and they're looking at a white woman and they're being directed by a small Italian woman while mm -hmm. she's speaking. <laughs> so I wanted to play up the whole element of pretentiousness in the um, establishment because there's a lot of that too in all these big institutions mm -hmm. and everything. It was just basically me taking things that we actually see this in real life, but not in the way that it really comes off being when you look at it. And that's what those scenes were in the film. I mean, literally, I mean, the whole idea of um, having to have a tarot card read to see if you're eligible for a fellowship. I mean, if you knew what some of these um, panels were for reviewing grants and all that stuff, you may as well just do anything and everything, having a ritual to, to decide who it, it may as well be. And that's what that was all about. I just decided, let's just show how these people think inside their heads. You know, what they ate this morning, who they, who they had sex with the night before, um, if their car is getting fixed or not, and let's translate that through mysticism, you know. But everybody's in a suit and everybody has a law degree and a corporate uh, CPA background and everything. And yet we're gonna merge ethereal um, mysticism with um, corporate, you know, um, philanthropic entities and sort of make this thing that's gonna brainwash everybody, which is what happens, which is what advertising and mass media and social media, that's what it's all about. So, a lot of this is just me expressing 20th century crossing into the 21st century ideology of who we are as a humanity in terms of education, in terms of art, in terms of um, corporate America, what it's evolved into, and at the same time, how the corporate people still need the creative community, regardless. However, they want to take the safe route instead of the true route. Like you said, um, a film like this, directed by David Lynch, no one would blink an eye at, but some no-name no dude from the hood, you know, with the bare essentials of traditional cinematic equipment, you know, people are like, huh, what? And I've been getting out a lot lately. People are still baffled that I pulled this off in 35 millimeter, black and white cinema scope. They still don't get it. They, 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 they have a hard time accepting that. Yeah. Because one of the grants that I was denied getting, um, they said in the grant, you cannot make a 35 feature for $20,000. And that was meant to be seed money. That wasn't meant to, you know, and I didn't get the grant. It just, you know. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just outrageous. Of course you can. Um... I mean, if you're, if you're pretty good at hand developing, you can do it for even cheaper. Exactly. And some of the film actually was hand developed. Some of it was. All right. So you started filming this when? Uh, officially, the very first day of shooting was January 1st, 2011. January 1st. Yeah. Sorry, because well, what I want to do is I want to go through, I'm very interested and in, I think what I, I hope people really actually come away with this is like, walk me through making this you know i'm not a grants board so uh <laughs> you know but you know maybe walk them through it too of like how do you pull this off how do you start from nothing because this okay. is because one of the differences because this isn't digital you know you're right. not picking up your phone and filming it and then you can throw it on a jump drive right you are you're literally starting with nothing and then literally. you have to have a bunch of physical things in order to make another physical thing, which is the film itself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, which I find super, you know, obviously I, I find fascinating. I love. So let's 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 go through that process. Okay, let's start from the 
scratch the beginning way way back big bang big bang literally big bang um and mike if you want to change your angle just walk and feel free you got the camera locked up over here uh, yeah feel free to but i got good lighting right now so you can yeah, feel me yeah. as much as you want there's three pre-factors that happened before the film got made and i'll try and condense those quickly um i wanted to do a feature film because I just, I love cinema, the whole nine yards. I've been doing films forever, but I wanted to do something feature length, but I didn't want to just make any kind of film. I wanted to make something that I'd be happy and proud of, something that I'd want to see. So there were many options available, but I had several things in considered. One in particular was, there was a film that I was doing with my friend Dexter Davis. It was going to be a follow-up to a short that we made back in the 80s on 60 millimeter, the first time I used a Bolex. We were going to do another film on 35 millimeter in black and white, and it was going to be about him and being an artist in the city of Cleveland, but showing in a more abstract, gritty sort of way. We started it, Dexter got flaky on me, we never finished it. I got a little flaky also, but it never got finished, so it's sad. And then I had a residency at the Tri-C Cuyahoga Community College to do a film residency where I would teach a course and make films with these students, and they were getting credit for this. And we were gonna make 100 films in eight weeks, and we had to come up with an idea and a script within 10 minutes, we would write it out, and then we would make the film and everything. And it was just so fun. And so I had other people come on board and we were making all kinds of shorts and music videos, crazy. We did a couple of horror films, really fun stuff. And then one of my friends who's a line producer came by and we did a trailer for her film festival with this setup. And we were talking about the art scene and we were talking about Cleveland and talking about the schools and grants. And, and we were always saying, oh, man, it just sucks how to try to apply for a grant and you got to go through all this nonsense. And we're like, yeah, it's almost like they're witches. It's like witchcraft or something involved with that. It makes you wonder. So we were joking about that. She was saying, you should make a film about that. About what? About how it sucks being an artist in Cleveland. I said, you know what? I could do that, but is it worth it? They're like, yeah, if you did, it would be basically a big fuck you and all that stuff type thing. And I said, well, maybe one day I'll do that. But I said, but not now. I don't want to do that now. So anyway, let's leap many years later. And I had a chance to do a feature horror film that was pitched to me. And that project was okay, but I wanted to make it something more than what it could be because the director didn't want me to spend any money. He wanted to be a low budget digital movie. I said, I don't do that stuff. So anyway, I had a friend of mine take this guy's treatment and we wrote a script out of it. We wrote the script, we took it back to this producer guy. He said, oh, you're making this complicated. So we're like, okay, whatever. And so I bailed on that because I just didn't want to do what he wanted. He wanted a stupid John Waters type thing, which I'm not interested in that. So my friend said, hey, Rob, if you want to do a horror film, I got a script you might like because we talked about the kind of films that we liked. So he rewrote a script, a treatment for me. I read, I said, let's write the script. We wrote the script, the whole nine yards. It was great. A year and a half later, we had my friend as a line producer. We had another friend of mine who was a bigger producer in the industry. He was gonna be our executive. To make a long story short, we had a trailer, an LLC, everything. We had everything ready to go. That project fell through. I won't go into details about that because that would lead to me doing Paper Shadows. But what happened was, to make a long story short, I didn't know enough about the business to really say more about that, but I knew I wanted to make a feature. But I decided, you know, if I ever make another film, I'm going to do this my way. This stuff doesn't work. This Hollywood stuff doesn't work for me because that's what that would have been. There was going to be like a big budget and everything. The, the sad um, anecdote to that, though, is a film years later came out called Get Out. Our film was half of Get Out. And it pisses me off that that came out because, not that came out, it's a good movie. I like Get Out, but that our film didn't get what it should have because our film half of get out was our film this was back in 2007 mm -hmm. so anyway that pissed me off but one of the people that invested in that film wanted to do her film and she was doing a feminist piece and she wanted me to be her cinematographer so i dp'd her film and did the editing for that sadly that was karen st john vincent she passed away and my um 
I made a pledge to her and her family that when my film is done, I am going to finish Vacancy, which is her film. Now, I say that because when we were making her film Vacancy, we rented all this equipment that was being used, but we weren't shooting a lot. And there were days and weeks where there was no shooting going on. And I kept thinking, man, it's like, I want to do something because the, this, the horror film thing that fell through, I almost said the title, still bothered me. And I liked working on her film because her film was creative and everything, but I really wanted to do something on my own. So I sat down and I went over my notes from the installation that I did at Tri-C at the community college about the arts in Cleveland, because during that period of time, I was working on other projects and trying applying for grants. And I kept thinking, you know what? It is such nonsense that you can't get money to do things, but yet people that have no experience or people that are hacks or people that just know somebody or slept with somebody or whatever was getting money for these products that don't go anywhere, but they get all this money, tens, 15, $20,000 grants and whatever. So I'm thinking, you know what, let me dig up some ideas and let me just piece something together. And if I had to express what it's like being an artist here with no money, and I'm thinking, well, you know what, we always, let's just do something about it. Let's just do something. And that's basically how Paper Shadows got started. So I had an idea for a short film and it went from a short to being a feature. What happened was there a while back was I came across a ton of 35 millimeter black and white film stock that a friend of mine who worked at NASA, he ran their media department. They were getting rid of it. And he called me up and said, hey, Rob, I know you like expired stock. We got a ton of it here. You want it? I'm like, what do you got? Oh, it's all this tech pan, black and white, 35. Like, really tech pan? And that's like a great film stock. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm out there right now. He said, no, no, dude, sit tight. I'm bringing it to you. I'm like, what? And so he got in his van. He drove this all the way from NASA down to here. He pulled up and he unloaded all these big boxes, factory sealed boxes of 35 millimeter film stock, one 1,600 foot rolls of film stock. It was all expired, but it was never open, so it was mint shape and it was like 65 rolls of that he gave me wow so that stuff sat in my mom's for a while and i'm thinking one day i gotta use this i gotta use this and then sure enough i'm thinking ah this film it will be everything i could want in a film i want to make a film that looked like a pen and ink drawing a charcoal sketch a vine charcoal drawing i wanted to make this look as disjointed as possible but also have a quality to it that kicks you into another world so because very few filmmakers could you know Take on me, you know, the aha video. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. I was thinking something along the lines of that, but something a little bit more realistic, not animation. So yeah, I wanted to make this as optically visually interesting without relying on special effects. And it had to be 100% analog. Well, Karen's got all this gear here. I asked her, hey, would it be okay if I use this equipment to shoot something like a few, she's like, yeah, whatever you want. And so my friend Rich, who rented the camera to her, I said, Rich, I'm gonna keep the camera with me. I'm gonna, my, Rich Perrine, who just passed away, sadly. Mm -hmm. Great guy, he's one of my mentors. He said, Rob, go ahead and do whatever you want. Just keep the camera there. Just do whatever. I trust you. And so I figured, fine. So I sat down and I mapped out and storyboarded what this thing was going to be. And I came up with an idea for a variety of characters. And I literally just wrote a treatment and a first draft of the script that was really literally just scribbling on paper. Everything after that was drawings. I was storyboarding every element of the film that I wanted. Half of what I storyboarded is in the film. So what you're seeing is in the film mm -hmm. and what I've written. And as much as it looks like it's um, improvised, half of that was all scripted. There was actual stuff that I wrote. Some of the other dialogue, I had other friends of mine write and they, I told them what the scene was and they gave me stuff that they just hear. So, so that's how the film started. And so I said, okay, I need the start, starting point, starting point. And so I said, what the hell? I'm gonna do this chronologically. I'm gonna start from beginning to end for the whole first year of 2011. That was the plan. Yeah. So January 1st, 2011, I went out and I shot the first bit of B-roll and I went around town and it was ironically, it was New Year's Day and it was warm outside. It was like in the what, low 
low to mid 60s. It was warm. It was surprisingly warm. Mm -hmm. And I was driving all over the uh, warehouse, not warehouse district, the uh, factory districts, the warehouse areas, the uh, side streets. And I was just filming shots of the city that people see, but they don't see. Because I didn't want this to be a Cleveland movie. I wanted this to be a Midwest Rust Belt that you don't normally see. Because when you see Rust Belt stuff, it's the generic cliche stuff. I want this to be as different as possible. So I was playing with filters on the lenses. I was overexposing, underexposing. I was ex the first 20,000 feet of film I was experimenting with. Yeah, and yeah. that's how the whole film started. So every month I would take two days to a week and shoot stuff strictly for the film. And the whole plan was to have as much stuff put together to have the first reel ready by the end of um, each month. But of course that never happened because it was me doing everything. And my experience of shooting 35 millimeter was only limited for doing conventional shooting. I wasn't really familiar with doing crazy methods of shooting 35 like you would do with 16. So I was learning a lot along the way. And where were you, who was developing the film? At that time, um, there was, yeah, that was, there was only a handful of labs at that time compared mm -hmm. to what they are now. And there was a lab in um, uh, Maryland called um, Color Lab. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, and they did the processing and they pretty much have been tied to them and their sister lab, which is Video Film Solution. So they did the processing and everything. The stuff looked beautiful. I was just, you know, I had some of the stuff actually printed on film. I would take it down to the Cinematheque, John Ewing would let me run out on their screen. And some of the stuff was just jaw dropping. And I was thinking, oh yeah. So the more I did that, the more I went in and I kept adding elements to the script and I kept fleshing out the characters. And I was playing with all these things that pissed me off about how you know the art scene is and the art community and the philanthropic community and just how tend to sort of drift in these moments of fate and chance with with um you know like almost like in a gambling sort of way but I'm thinking well in a more mystical sort of way it make more sense and so mm -hmm. I was just dabbling in all these elements and I was writing the stuff down so I was sort of writing the script as I was making the film and then there were things that I would just change around and everything but the bulk of the film was shot in 2011 then the obstacles happen and that's where the film gets really juicy because the derailments that happened. It was one derailment after another, after another, after another. The first one was the girl I was seeing, um, she insisted on in coming to visit me, but I figured, well, if she comes here, I can't work on the film. Because mm -hmm. she was worried about having a neat, organized space. And that was the first bad thing that happened. I mean, it wasn't really her fault, but when she came, everything in the film stopped to a grinding halt. It sure. just stopped. And so that was in October. So the film didn't get off the ground again until after she left which was in 2012. And then we shot more stuff and we were using this Airflex. <clears throat> Rich's camera was an Airy 35 2C, the same camera that Kubrick used in a Clockwork Orange. It was the workhorse camera back in the day, belonged to 20th Century Fox, great camera. And it had an anamorphic aperture plate in it. So it was meant for shooting in CinemaScope. And I jerry-rigged um, my friend, Mike, another Mike, who I don't mm -hmm. even know if he's still with us anymore because he was sick. Mm -hmm. I was, he gave me some gear of his that we originally used. Cause we shot, we did a test shoot for this back in, 06 when I, the whole concept was being marinated in my head and we did a test shoot with his gear and that camera died but we still had the anamorphic lenses that he had so i took those lenses i put them onto the area it worked out fine um we were shooting in early 2012 got some great stuff there and that was leading up to me doing this big scene because i had actors that i already cast in the film and they were helping me every so often when their schedule was free but the problem was getting them together for certain scenes and there were several scenes that I had to fight tooth and nail to get them together to be in, and it was like pulling teeth. But as the, the year progressed, everybody's schedule was getting more loosened up. And so there was several scenes coming up that I had the whole cast, and I was ready to rock. 
And then this was the secondary element, which is even worse. And this is the bad one. And you know this story. <laughs> I won't say his name, but there was another filmmaker in Cleveland that was a fanatic. You know how you have neighbors that want to um, be there for you and they always call you and say, how are you doing today? Hey, can I help you with this? Hey, you know, sure. we all, okay, this dude was like that on steroids. Anyway, <laughs> he apparently was an extreme fanatic about celluloid like I was, but way worse. And he was getting this new film stock that was... The Ferrara, they were like over in Italy. They were like the other, they, were, they make film now, but this one, they were new. Okay. They were coming out with the new 35 film stock. And this dude was obsessed with trying it. And he wanted Rich's camera to do that. And so Rich said, well, you got to talk to Robert. He's shooting, you know, he's in Cleveland, da, da, da. So this dude was calling me three times a day, every day for like a month, nagging me about using this camera. And I said, dude, if you want to do a test, you can use my Bell and Howell IMO. You can use that for the test. That's all you need. Oh, no, I got to have the area. I got to have the area. And so... After weeks and almost a month and a half of him nagging me, I said, look, dude, okay, here's what we're going to do. I got a shoot coming up on these days. I need this camera. If I don't have this camera, I'm screwed because these actors are going out of their way to be available for me to shoot. And I tried to explain this. And I said, if I give you this camera, will you have it back after this week? And he promised me that he would. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to give you this camera. Now, there's one thing I got to show you, though, and I didn't mention this earlier. The camera was old. It was like 1969, and the threads in it were worn, and they were kind of rusted. And one of the screws fell out, and it was the screw for the uh, lid assembly that you close to lock it to make it light tight. So it came off. So to put the lid on after the film was thread, I had to gaffer tape it shut. And I told Richard, hey, Richard, the screw fell out. The thread was stripped. And he said, ah, don't worry about it. Just whenever you bring it back. Mm -hmm. I said, OK, cool. And so we were using it on Karen's film and for my film. No light leaks at all. It was working perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned before, this guy is those kind of people that he hears something wrong with your lawnmower. He wants to play with it and tinker with it. Yeah. That's the kind of dickhead this dude was. I said, there's a screw that's missing. The, shred is, the thread is stripped. Just gaffer tape it. It's going to be fine. No light leaks. All of a sudden, this dude act like he saw the devil talk to him. Uh, I said, no, dude, trust me. It's going to be fine. Don't freak out. Gaffer tape it. It's going to be fine. Trust me. Uh, I said, no, I said, dude, it's going to be okay. It works. <laughs> Take the camera, do your shoot. I need it back on this day. Guess what? I never saw that camera again since then. <laughs> you know why? This idiot freaked out. He took it to Rich, had Rich disassemble it to try and fix that lid. And then Rich, of course, sadly, which is why he passed on, he was having heart problems. He was getting heart surgery being done. He wasn't doing anything. I didn't have a camera. And that was all she wrote. And that was the last I saw her flex. <laughs> This dickhead did that to me. And to this day, I will never forget this idiot. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I had these days I had to shoot. I didn't have a camera and I was screwed. So Karen, we had to delay her film. We had to delay my film. And then finally I broke down and I said, look, you guys have been there for me. We're going to find another means to shoot this. And I did something that I'm regretting to this day. And this is, I'm not saying it's a downfall to the film, but it made the film much harder to shoot. We had to shoot with a DSLR. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some scenes that we shot that were actually some great sequences, but think about it. I'm shooting celluloid. Now right. you're shooting video. How are you going to get that back to the same? <laughs> right, so, right. That was one of the first big pitfalls of this whole project was that. And it pains me. The stuff, though, what I did was I went ahead and rewrote elements in the script. And I feel, OK, we're going to have these moments where there's going to be these added visual montages. And so that's where the DSLR stuff is. So that's why, if you notice, there's these montages where it's a frame within a frame. That's that right. stuff. So, okay. And I said, look, Karen, you know, 
instead of renting Rich's camera, which he spent all this money on, you could have bought a camera. I said, why don't we go on eBay and find a 35 package? And I did that. And I found an Airy 35 BL4, which is like a Rolls Royce of 35 cameras. And this company out of Boston was selling it for next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And so we got it for 2,600 bucks. Wow. Now this is an $80,000 camera for 2,600 and it was in mint shape. And I went ahead and I bought some magazines to go with it separately. And so, and that was it. So we got the camera, we used it on her film and she was like, oh, cause you know, the Airy 2C was noisy. This camera mm -hmm. was quiet, it purred like a kitten. You couldn't mm -hmm. hear it. So her film looked great. This is, when, this is the last story I'm gonna tell you in terms of this nonsense. The problem was the camera was a PL mount and I didn't have the anamorphic lenses I had did not fit the camera. So um, Karen compromised that on her film, unfortunately, and she shot, her film was in scope too, but she shot the rest flat with spherical lenses because that's all we could rent. And I told her, you're gonna screw your film up. And sadly her film is now screwed because of that, but that's mm -hmm. another story. Uh, my film though, I decided I'm not gonna make that mistake. So I waited until 2013 until I found me some anamorphic um, attachments for the PL mounts. Um, but the film sat for a while. So basically production started all throughout 2011. It stopped in October of 2011. It started up in 2012. It stopped in spring of 2012 and it didn't start again until um, summer of 2013. Yeah. Started up again. And my one actress went back to school. Everybody was doing their own thing. So to make a long story short, I, I, met a, I met a guy on eBay. He was selling these adapters for a PL mount. It turned out his partner was in Cleveland, which is the weirdest thing. Mm -hmm. So I thought I was going to have to order these from um, the Ukraine, whatever, but his partner was in Cleveland. He had the part. We hooked up. We tested it out. It worked perfectly on the anamorphic lenses. And we were, making, we were ready to rock. So, mm -hmm. so production started again, um, 2013, all the way through 2014. We wrapped production. I saw what we had. And I liked it, but it wasn't good enough. I didn't like the intro. I didn't like the outro and their parts of the middle and it worked. So I went back and I reshot some extra stuff. And that was throughout 20, on and off between 2015 and 2016, because I needed money. All that film I got from NASA was used up and I had to shoot color film. And that's another story because um, the thin pitch black and white negative didn't work with the area. It didn't like it, it kept jamming up. So I had to buy color stock anyway. And we had to shoot the rest of the film in color because black and white stock was almost impossible to get. Once that was done, the film was wrapped and we wrapped production officially by the end of January, I'm sorry, 20, yeah. December of 2016, we wrapped production. Okay. And so from there, it was the post-production, which was on five, five years of shooting, right? Is that correct? Uh, off no, and on, off and officially on. I say three years. It was three okay. and a half years of shooting because it was, it was off and on. So three and a half years, if you would have added up, then the post-production was like another two and a half years because of all the um, digital stuff. And we could talk about that. That's a whole other can of worms. I had more um, pitfalls deals for the post-production because I wasn't familiar with the digital process. The plan was to do it on film, but everybody talked me into doing it digitally. I did it. I regret it because I learned a lot about digital editing now. Because, of, However, it also, my theory that nobody in Cleveland understands filmmaking in terms of traditional filmmaking. And... For, for, the, for lack of a better word, I learned the hard way. And that's where, um, you know, I got familiar with Final Cut Pro again. I could do Final Cut with my eyes closed now and with Premiere. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, but now the problem is getting the film where I want it to be on film. Because like I said, it's, you know, it's, it, it was definitely, if anything else, I was telling, um, uh, who was I talking to? 
Oh, my one intern who um, had a seminar with Jody Williams, you know him, he's a DP. He's out in LA now. He's, he just shot the Coming to America movie, but he's a friend of mine. Okay. Um, he was saying how, yeah, his film school didn't really begin until after he graduated grad school. Because once he worked in the industry, everything came full circle, made sense. That was his master's program, was working in the industry. And I said, well, you know what? I'll go further than that. Making Paper Shadows was my master's program and also my PhD. Because <laughs> now everything and anything about the process of cinema in all aspects came full circle 100 times over. So I'm not a cynical person at all, but a lot of my cynicism comes out now when I hear people tell me they want to be a filmmaker or they know, you don't know jack shit because you haven't done it. <laughs> right, sure. I tell people that because unless you got in there and got your knees and hands and had to bust your ass in ways you wouldn't comprehend, you know nothing about filmmaking. What kind of like crew are you having here? What's, what's the band look like? Is it just you? Uh, or who do you? Well, here's the thing. When it first started, it was just me. But then what happened was, because the other obstacle was uh, my job was getting in the way. And so my, I asked my job, is there a way I can use this film project as a teaching curriculum for kids? Because they wanted me to start a film workshop with these high school kids. And they were like, oh, that would be interesting. And, but they were thinking like video and all that stuff. I said, right. no, we're going to make a real film on film. So I basically had a teaching curriculum with these kids that were like in high school, ninth graders, 10th graders, you know. And um, basically we made a, they, I put them on the crew and I, and I brought in some of my friends that were industry professionals and they mentored each kid, sound crew, gripping, mm -hmm. gapping, um, script supervision, all that stuff. So we, throughout that summer of 2013, we had students work on the film. And some of that was great. Some of it was a nightmare from hell. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you got 15 high school kids on a set, they're still kids. So, um, so part of that was with the kids. And then I had people like Mike over here volunteer uh, my friend Bruno, a lot of my other friends, they volunteer and they help. So every other uh, day of shooting, it was a full crew. And every other day, it was me doing everything. Mm -hmm. So it varied. It was up and down. I mean, if you want to go as far as the whole definition of experiment, not experiment, but underground cinema or independent cinema in the bare essential sense, this film, 100%, no, 150%, <laughs> beyond equates that, you know, so. Sure. I mean, I, I would describe it as like a community film. You're bringing people. You could say that, yeah. Together. I mean, what's funny is I laughed when you said that the school thought it would be a digital production, and yeah, the kids would just be half of them would be standing around with their thumb up their ass. Like, there's not much yeah. to do. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. But on but, this, everybody had everybody had something in their hands. They had a they had a, a C stand. They had a light. They had dolly track. You know, they mm -hmm. had um, lenses. They had the magazines. You know. Nobody was standing around doing nothing. If they did, I would yell at them saying, get over here and do this. But not yeah. to be mean, saying, we need this done now. You know, so yeah. we, you know, kids were moving tripods around. I mean, we were doing, I showed them so many tricks. So it was basically like summer camp is what it was mm -hmm. for these kids. And we would go on location. There was, well, I shouldn't talk about it because it's going to upset me. But there was one scene where we got kicked out of a location. Remember that the uh, Captain America Winter Soldier movie that Russo's did? I, I didn't see it. Turns out they were, you didn't see it? Oh, you should see it. It's worth seeing. It. This is one of the better Marvel films. But <laughs> we made the mistake of shooting at a location that they shot at two or three weeks before. Mm -hmm. And um, we got in trouble and they kicked us out. And they told us, if you want to shoot here, our fee starts off at $10,000. That's what we charged them to make that Marvel film. And we're like, huh? And I saw that movie. I'm thinking, oh, so that, that so $10,000 an hour, I think is what it was. And I saw that scene in the film and said, oh, wow, that was where we shot. And they, and they spent over $200,000 just to get that one scene. Okay, because 
my um, teaching assistant was supposed to take half my students because half my class did not want to work on the film. They wanted to stay and do photography. And I said, that's cool, no problem. So he didn't show up that day. He decided he didn't want to come to work, which really to this day pisses me off. But mm -hmm. I had to take the whole class with me because of that. And we also had actors that were in costume that was going to the location and that was told, they were told to be there at a certain point. And so they got there on time. But we were strictly required to take a van that we had chartered to go where we take the kids on a field trip. We mm -hmm. had to take this van. So, and the van driver was one of these dudes. He's a great guy. His name's Dave. But he drives like someone's grandma on a Sunday. <laughs> and he took the long way to get there. We didn't get to that location until 45 minutes till after the actors got there. And then I told everybody, don't park in the front, park in the back. But they parked in the front right by the office. This was Lakeview Cemetery. The staff was like, what's going on here? Because all these people were getting out all dressed up and everything. And everything. Is there a funeral or something? And, and by the time we got there, everybody's like, where were you guys? What took y'all so long? Because yeah, normally to get from there, this is like off of Euclid where the cemetery is. From where my job is, it's normally like a 10-minute drive, if that, in rush hour. This literally took 45 minutes for us to get there. I don't know why or how, but he was driving like below the speed limit. It was, I was going, pulling my hair out. But we got there. We, I said, okay, get the gear. We're going to have to go over there. But we should not be parked. We should be parked on the other side. There's another parking lot you can park at. And the whole idea was we were going to shoot there. No one was going to know about it. But half the students that I had with me were not with the film crew. So they were running amok through the cemetery, like running amok. They were climbing over tombstones and mausoleums and everything. And, and then some of the actors were wearing stupid makeup and stuff. The one dude put vampire fangs in his teeth and everything because it was a party scene for the, the, the philanthropists were having this party. And, it was, mm -hmm. and two of the characters were interacting <clears throat> at this party. That's what the scene was. So you had the kids running around, running amok. You had these actors dressed up crazy. And then, of course, this one dude, he volunteered to be my AD, and I didn't ask him to, but he took it upon himself. He was yelling at everybody, saying, stand by for sound, picture up. And I kept saying, will you shut up, people are going to hear it. And he kept doing that. And so we managed to get set up. We had everything, go we, you know, everything was set up and ready to go. We were shooting. We got three or four scenes done. And then all of a sudden, I heard this, excuse me, uh, who's in charge here? And it was mm -hmm. me, and I was behind the camera. We were getting ready to slate this last shot. And she was like, you don't have a permit to be here apparently and you have students running around and you don't ever bring and she just went gave me the riot act she said you have to leave here now i want you off these premises now and and so we had to break down and then one of the actors to do with the fangs and the eyes he tried negotiating <laughs> and that made it even worse i'm like dude we're in a cemetery you look like satan you think you're gonna no and so he was begging her and she and she got even angrier and so i said guys kill it and I, and I had some of my students go get the other kids and round them up because I didn't know where they were. And so by the time we were down by the front loading up, she came out yelling at the crew. Anyway, so we got out of there and then my, I had to call my job to explain to my boss what was going on. And she was like, you need to come to my office. You and me, we're going to have a discussion right now. And I was like, okay. And I got in big trouble. I had to apologize. It was just a big disaster. That was the one day that was, ooh. But aside from all that, no, seriously, man, it's, this was a great experience. I just wished it didn't have to take so long. And I just wished the process of working in cellulite wasn't such a pain because yeah, I had to keep sending stuff out of state and um, you know, I had to um, sort of re-educate myself on how to cut on film because I hadn't done it so long. And plus cutting mm -hmm. 35, doing sync sound, it's different than doing non-linear 35 stuff, painting and scratch. This was all different. So sure, yeah. it was basically me starting from scratch. But like I said, <clears throat> digital route, I ain't gonna lie, was great, but it spoiled, it spoiled us. Everybody was spoiled by that because 
I kept telling everybody who was helping me edit, because everybody had their own computer, they were editing. They were trying to do all these effects. I said, don't do effects electronically. It has to be cut and splice, no effects. And my one intern, Tony, who's a great guy, mm -hmm. um, some of the animation in the film, the collage stuff, he did some of that. He was doing more of that in the edits. I kept saying, no, dude, we can do that optically. We cannot do that in editing effects. And he was doing all these digital effects. I kept saying, that cannot go back to the film. So. So anyway, um, but the bulk of the film was done. We did the first rough cut. We submit the cans because one of the investors, I had people giving me money at this point because we did the Kickstarter, which was a big help, but that also kind of screwed things for us because the film was under the radar. This film was going to get made and come out. No one knew about it. But because mm -hmm. we did the Kickstarter, everybody knew about it. So, um, um, but one of the investors gave me a lot of money and she kept asking, are you going to submit the cans? You're going to submit the cans? And I could say, well, this wasn't meant to go to Cannes, but she gave me extra money if I submitted to, Cannes, to the Cannes Film Festival. And I did that, and of course we got rejected. That was the first edit of the film, which was too long. Mm -hmm. And there were like six more edits after that. Um, the third or fourth edit was the one that played the Cinematheque. And then the last edit is what you saw, because there were two edits before that, what you saw. Mm -hmm. And so now the final edit's gonna be, like I said, on film. But um, I, I gotta ask you, and don't take this the wrong way, but what keeps you going? What keeps, what keeps me going? What keeps it going? Um, you know, it's funny you mention that because there's a bunch of shorts that I shot that I never finished. And I'm actually going to finish those once this is done because I'm motivated now. Um, part of it is I love the process. And I also love the idea of doing something with the process that's unconventional. But aside from that, one, I didn't want to have my first feature to be unfinished. One. Two, this is, you know, and you know about this already. I'm applying for the DGA. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have several, by the way, since we spoke, you know how many endorsements I have now? Potential, no. endorsement, uh, potential endorsements. These are all people that heard about what I'm doing and they, they heard my story, what I told you. And they were like, dude, you more than deserve it. You should be, you should be doing features, you know, because everybody's saying, you know, how, you know, what I've done. So I have pending four endorsements right now. I just need three, right. but I got four pending. And these are like people that were like taken by what, what, I, what they heard from and they, and they saw some of this. So, so. I didn't want to go into this with anything half-assed. This had to be great. And like I said, I wanted to make something that I really wanted to watch myself. I mean, any filmmaker that makes something and they don't care about it, you know, even if it's something that's not even my genre, I'm still going to want to have the pride to sit down and watch it. And I've, you know, I've shot a bunch of stuff for other people that I'm still proud of. Then there's the films that I worked on that are garbage, but I like to say, hey, at least what I did was good, but sure. when, I, when I DP it. So this couldn't fall fall off his bed like, oh, this will be a write-off. No, I had to go all the way with this because my goal was to make this as if it was the last thing I was ever going to do. And I, that, and that, even to this day, that's still the same thing. The thing is, I, I love making films and I want to do films, but from now on, I will never, ever make a film like this again. This is like a one-offer. There will never be an out-of-pocket production where, mm -hmm. under these conditions ever again. Never. Mm -mm. It, it's, mm -hmm. that, this, I made history with this. This is never going to happen again. So many people here, when they heard about me making Paper Shadows, I won't say any names, a lot of them thought we were going to fail tremendously. And they said, Robert doesn't accept reality. He's living in the past. He's never going to succeed. And, and these are the people that I don't have to say this to them. I could be like, look, the film is done. It's already getting these write-ups. I mean, you and I'm getting an interview with Sight and Sound next week. It's like, oh, oh excellent. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's just, so, I mean, it's just things are evolving. It won Audience Choice Award at, you know, the Chicago Underground. Which yeah, was congrats. A oh, thanks. I mean, cause I didn't think of this as a crowd pleaser and I don't really make crowd pleasers. <laughs> People like this film. I was like, okay, well, cool. You know, so, so, I mean, this enough is really Heart, it, it's heartwarming to know that there are people that actually embrace this and and I think there's hope for filmmakers like me because of this so so no that's what keeps me going I I didn't really have anything to prove I just wanted to make something that I wanted to see 
my way, you know, because I've shot so many films for so many people that I really, you know, that just didn't really care. And people around here just don't seem to care. And I'm going to say it again, you know, Mike, you know, I see it all the time. Cleveland is not a film town. It's a production town and films come here and get made. But in terms of being people indulging in cinema that actually make films and watch films and share films and discuss films and not just mainstream Hollywood crap, but all aspects of the process and the art and the craft and the legacy of it, it doesn't exist here. So why stay in Cleveland? One reason, my mom. Yeah. She's 95 years old. She's still here. She's still- Sweet lady. I've her, met her. Her, her body is not allowing her to do what she wants, but her mind is still going. And it's just, yeah. she's the name. When she's ready to go, I'm not planning on relocating, but I'll be out back and forth. I mean, you know, I'm trying to get back out there. I would have been out to LA sooner last year for the um, DGA thing. I was going to apply mm -hmm. for that, see what it would take. But um, COVID destroyed that. So, well, <laughs> I, gotta, I, I feel like I got to say, as somebody who lives in Los Angeles and is <laughs> yeah. going to leave Los Angeles relatively soon. I, You're I not the only one. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advise moving here. It's, it's done here. It's dead. It's dead in New York City. It's dead here. There's nothing interesting going on here. Well, here's the thing, though. It was never really alive there. That's what, this is how I look at LA and New York. The only reason why you have to go out there and you don't have to relocate, but just go out there is just get with the people that have the money and the power. That's it. That, mm -hmm. that horror film that I mentioned, I learned all this working on that project because we were on, on the phone with LA every other day. And we were talking to all these people out in LA and they were kept saying, well, when are you gonna come out here? Let's talk business. When are you gonna come out here? When are you gonna come out here? And, you know, and the, our one producer hated LA. He, he was all about New York but the other producer wanted to go to LA and this was arguing. And I'm just thinking, okay, guys, I'm not saying let's relocate, but can't we just go out there and sit down with these people? We need like money. So let's do this. So my thing is this, if you have to go out there where it all began to get where you need to get with fine. Cause I have other friends like you and former students that are doing well out there. They don't like it, but mm -hmm. that's where the money and the activity is. But if there was a way I can get that kind of money here to do what I want to do on a more formal way. In other words, if you knew how many name actors I met while I was out there <laughs> that mm -hmm. I could talk to, and I said, they gave me their agent. I, I have all these people, all these connections now, but I need money. It's all money. Mm -hmm. If I had $2 million right now, guess what? I could knock out a bunch of films, but it wouldn't take much. You know, this next film that we, I want to do, there's already a few name actors that I'm considering, but they're all has-beens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the one is, the other one is not. Um, but, um, you know, we just need like a 10, 15 grand to bring them here for like a, for like a few days to a week. Right. It's just... You know, but you got to go out there and wheel and deal. When I met Cuba Goodings out there, he was all excited about Paper Shadows. Um, another person that surprised me, apparently, who wants to see the film is Barry Jenkins. He's all about this film. He wants to see it's it. Fantastic, yeah. You know, people like that. I mean, and they heard about, well, Cuba Goodings, I met him in person, but these other folks, they heard about me through the grapevine, you know. Barry mm -hmm. Jenkins, he's been talking about me for the last four years, I found out. You know, I, he, won't, he won't follow me on Instagram. But <laughs> <laughs> well, not yet. So, well, we'll see. But no, so a lot of, that's the only reason I'm saying LA and New York is important because you got to go where the market is. But no, I don't want to relocate there at all, even though I have family out there. I mean, I like it out there, but no, I would, I, I want to be able to live here and be able to go out there when I want to. Like right now, next week, it's going to be in the single digits. Now, if I, if it wasn't for COVID, I'd be out there <laughs> hanging out with my cousin. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know what? Life is too short. Life is not fair. I went the legit route. Now I figured, you know, I'm gonna play the game a little bit myself. So yeah, I mean, you know, you're with Spin Magazine. I didn't know Spin was still around. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know, but, 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 hey, you know what? I know journalists at Spin Magazine now. So re, anyway, re, you know. Revamped, baby. Which is weird because I seriously I thought Spin was long gone, and the same I mean, thing was. It was. Spin. 
it well, when was. When did it come back? Um, I, I think a hedge fund or some sort of money group bought the bought it, bought the rights. You know, it's an IP, and uh, they brought back Bob Guccione, who founded it. <laughs> Bob Guccione Jr., who founded it. He's still around. I thought he died too. I didn't. Uh, his father passed away. Who started? I knew his dad did. Yeah, no, Bob. Bob's alive and on my ass about two different things. Um, okay, that's that's a good thing. Man. And no, it's good. No, I, I I've been knee deep in this uh, GameStop business, trying to write an article for it. Right. But um, no, Bob's Bob's alive and well and great, and he's sort of one of the editors of the magazine. They got a couple of different ones and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's like everything. If it, if it has a name, if it existed in the past, there's the chance that nostalgia can come and bring, you know what I mean? Whatever that term is like inner, inner contextuality or something, you know, it's like you kind of remember something. So you're like, oh yeah, it's a thing. See, that, that makes me wish we can bring back some of those old studios like AIP, American International Pictures. Sure. Yeah. I mean, oh, Corman's uh, still alive. I think he's still working. Who? Corman. I think he still works. Uh, well, he's like in his nineties now. I don't know if he's, <laughs> I don't even still working, but he's up to, he's like my mom's age. Now, um, one of the ideas I had for a film, for a feature that I would like to do, it would be a unofficial coming of age, semi-biographical film about me. And it would be about me and those films because as a little kid, and I, we talked about this a little bit, I think, um, I owe a lot of my upbringing for cinema was watching those B movies. And that would be with Samuel Ziarkov. Bird Eye Gordon and um, and I knew Roger Corman also, yeah. And along with all the Japanese sci-fi fantasy stuff too. But those are the guys that brought that stuff to us as a kid. You know, I mean, the first film I saw as a kid on my eight millimeter projector was um, War of the Colossal Beast. That was Bird Gordon yeah. made. And now, Bird who, Gordon is still he's still alive actually. Yeah. He's in his nineties too. Now who 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 was stringing this up? Who who was uh... those films? Yeah, it was your dad, right? Yeah, my dad, yeah. yeah. My dad had an eight millimeter keystone projector and you know, he used to show porn to his friends and all that stuff. <laughs> I know, I, I want, I'm kind of like hoping to get you to that story, I love it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> see, this film that I wanna do, I wanna have that in this film that I wanna make. It's, yeah. It would have all that. Because um, young people do not know the concept of the party record. Yes, and, the party record and the, and and the, the stag parties and all that stuff. And my dad and all his friends, they would, they would, my dad would bring the films to their house or they would have a party, whatever. But he had all these, these films. And the one I saw, it was mangled up. And to this day, it was the first porn film I ever saw. And we just, this day, it will always be in the back of my head is the man that was cooking. That's what it was. It was a guy, <laughs> he was in a white <laughs> he was in a apartment. <laughs> and he was in a school, but he was cooking something. I got, hold on, I then, got to write that down. And then there's this chick on a bed with her legs spread open, she's naked. And that's all I remember. <laughs> that's the movie. Hold on, so I'm not I can ask my dad, can we see the man is cooking? That's what I kept calling it. God damn, that's great. That's so and great. So and my dad great. was like, no, no, don't talk about that. <laughs> So, you know, one of the, so I have this, as you can see in the, under, that's not my name. I, 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 you know, I have this podcast where we talk about inappropriate movies we watched as a kid and we're going to, we're oh, going yeah. to have, gonna have oh, you yeah. on at some point, but. Oh yeah, we can do that. Cause I can tell you some stories. I mean, sure, of course. that dates all the way into the early eighties when I was a kid, I saw, I saw some stuff that no kid should have seen. Yeah. And so did I. And, and we, what we talk about over and over again in the podcast is like, you know, you talk about the man who was cooking. <laughs> What a great title. You, you probably only saw, like, how much of it did you see? I want to say maybe 25 to 30 seconds of it, max. Exactly. Yeah. There's so much things that are from my childhood 
that have imprinted on my brain yes. that I only saw 10, 10, five to 10% of it. Yeah. You know Same what I mean? Yeah. Like there's like a weird thing. Like nowadays, not only is everything prevalent, but you watch it all. Like you can kind of see it all. Like the analog world that we grew up in where you would just catch a, a scrambled porn or, a, or, you know, like these 10 seconds of a stag film before your parents go, you know, go run upstairs. It's really amazing. And, and I'm bringing it up because yes. I'm bringing it up because it's, it is in your film. There are yeah, these elliptical yeah. moments that are like, oh, I'm just going to get 10 seconds of this. Yes. Oh, yeah. Big time. And that was all intentional. And that was all scripted, too. I had it was yeah. like a list of things that if I could throw something in there, could I do that? And yeah. I did. It was actually meant to be more, but I got what I could get. But yeah, no, that's in there. Yeah. Now, I, I wonder where we're going to land on this together. Movies are done, right? It's over. As far as, as, far as like theatrical screenings? I'm, I'm talking about the, the art form itself. And, and Mike, by the way, if you're, if you're standing back there, too, feel free to, feel free to chime in. <laughs> They're done, right? I have this theory. It's over. It depends on how you look at it, because some people I know feel, say exactly what you say. Films are done. Some people said no films are slowly dying. And then some of mm -hmm. us feel that, no, it's not done. It's just commercially, in terms of what we see as cinema and film, that is slowly transitioning to another form of appreciation. And they predicted this 20 years ago. And I think it's sort of coming to pass because the one kid, um, his name's Chris. I'm doing a project with him in the fall for his um, sculpture piece he's doing. We were talking about the Marvel films and he was saying he hates the Marvel films because they're ruining movies and cinema is done because of it. I said, no, dude, it's like those films are for people that just want escapism. And this is a new brand of escapism. Movies aren't dead yet. because He's an artist also. And he likes traditional cinema like me, but he just feels that mainstream movies are garbage now. And, and I said, well, yeah. in a sense, you got to look at it like this. People want several things. They want excitement. They want thrills. They want a three ring circus. They want to fall in love again. They want to be scared. And there's no better way to do that than through mainstream conventional storytelling sure. through, through movies and TV and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, though, we're now living in a period in human history and existence where everything in terms of narrative structure and storytelling has been mutated and evolved into all these forms of communication. Ah, I have to have my clipboard here. Um, it's all mutated in all these other forms of expression now, and it's all taken a shallow, superficial aspect of what it's like to be told a story and now it's more about the, the way it's presented and how it's polished and how cute the actors are and, and all this shallow irrelevant stuff that doesn't really hold any water anymore and i'll say this much the junk food mentality aspect of movies is right now supreme and people can argue that all they want i mean they, this has always been around since sure. since um, i want to say since the 50s actually when films started becoming more and more of a gimmick in the 50s that's when i'd say this started to become a new standard but to the point now where anything and everything technically can be achieved that's a marvel for the audience, they're going to forget about any aspect of story or whatnot. And which is mm -hmm. sad because there's a million stories that still haven't been told yet that will never be told because it's not marketable. Or if it is, it's going to be put, presented in a way that's so convoluted and generic, you're going to forget the message. A good example. Did you see uh, Annabellum? You ever see that? No. Have you heard of it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Last year, right? Uh, yeah, last year. Yeah, you heard yeah. of it. Did you see it? Okay, my girlfriend wanted to see it for her birthday. <laughs> so we streamed it instead because we couldn't see it in the theater. And I'm thinking, okay, I heard rumors of what this film is. I'm not sure, but if it's what I think it is, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> and sure enough, it was what I thought it was going to be. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, the guys that wrote this, they gave these idiots like $20 million to make this movie. 
you know, these guys didn't watch movies or they didn't read or they had a good idea and the studios tampered with it. One of the two. But for them to make a movie like that, put it out there and people to fall for that, I'm just thinking, you guys, I would have been like, no, man, I ain't making this. It was like a watered down Twilight Zone. It was a water. Mm -hmm. It was something that Rod Serling could piss on and, and make better. It was so bad. Right. But I respected the fact they were trying to enlighten people because this was all about the whole woke thing and the whole thing about um, for the black community. I mean, I respected that. It was about slavery and all that, but it was just the way it was handled. It's somebody gets dropped into that time period. Is that right? Something like that. Something know? like that. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. But the sad thing is I saw it coming 20 minutes into the movie. I said, oh, no, this mm -hmm. isn't what I think it is. And sure enough. And I'm just thinking, you guys thought you were clever. Now, I'll say this much. If that film was a subplot to a bigger film, it would have worked. Mm -hmm. Because other films did that way <laughs> back when as a subplot, and it worked. And I'm thinking, these guys use this as the main plot. And I'm thinking, do you think people have IQs of, like, are they grade school? Like, it was like only grade school kids could not. Could, <laughs> that's how dumb the plot was. Yeah. But, but, but there are people that say this film's a masterpiece. I read some reviews. I'm thinking, what, these people don't watch movies. Movies are dying badly because if people are, if many people now are dropping millions in the garbage like that, that's sad. Movies aren't fun anymore. They're not fun. They're they not fun. They're not, they're not fun. And, and they really, there's no need to think. You just go in there, you turn off your brain and everything you want to see is in there for all the mm -hmm. wrong reasons. And yet there's nothing there to really get you excited. I mean, see, back in the day, man, seriously, when we were growing up and you're almost, well, you're not as old as I am, but. When we knew a certain movie was coming out with a certain actor or a certain director, we were excited about it. And sure. we went there knowing that, okay, this is gonna be good. And more than half the time, we were more than pleased. And we are like, man, I wanna see that again. It was always that. That was more, even the B movies were like that back then. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you rarely have that now. You know, I mean, even the TV movie of the weeks back then were great. There were so many sure, movies yeah. that were maybe, that were just great films. I mean, it's sad that they're seen as TV movies. Those were great films back then, Yeah, you know? And that stuff started dying off by the time the mid eighties rolled around. And then the nineties came in, there was like one last glimmer of hope. And after that, and then ever since then, it's just been like recycle, recycle, recycle. But you get a new director that comes in and gives a new spin on it. And then that's considered a game changer, which I hate that term game changer because mm -hmm. there's no damn game changers now, man. Everything, it's just, everything now is just so generic and, and just so, you know, like you said, there's no fun. You know, right, the, I mean, right. the fun of seeing a movie especially if you're seeing it in a drive-in or in a theater, or even with your family on a Friday night on TV. I mean, back in the day, if a movie that was gonna be airing on the CBS Monday night movie, and it, we knew it was gonna be something good, we were excited. My mom would make popcorn for us, they would get punch for us and lemonade, and mm -hmm. we would all sit together and watch it. And, and, you know, and of course, the films were pan and scanned. <laughs> we didn't care, those were still good movies. Sure, yeah. But, you know, so we were excited about that, but when you get older and it's like, you know, you become more bitter and cynical. And my mom was that way back in the 70s and the 80s. She was like, ah, movies now ain't what they used to be. Back in the day, oh, movies used to be great. And Yeah, and now yeah Rock, Rocky like, Three with the family. That's the best movie experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, it's like, I remember when I saw, um, oh, I'm thinking of a movie. Okay, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I'm gonna talk about that. You ever see that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I saw that at the drive-in as a kid, and I saw it in California when I was visiting my cousins twice. And it's one of those, I'm gonna regret this from now on now, but I had a chance to buy a 35 print of that on eBay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, 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 if I would have put a bigger bid, I could have got it, but I didn't, and it went for like 150 bucks. But ironically, um, 
the anniversary for that film just happened just recently. And mm -hmm. Carolyn Monroe, who's in the film, she just had a birthday and something, somebody else connected that film. It was just all these things about that film was happening. And I was just thinking, oh man, I felt bad I didn't get that film. But when I was a kid, that film brought so many great memories. And it was an event to see something like that. And everybody puts it down as being one of the weaker Sinbad films. I'm like, no, that's a good movie. John Philip Law is a great Sinbad. I mean, the mm -hmm. monsters in that film were great. Tom Baker from Dr. Yeah, Tom Baker had a birthday also around that same time. Mm -hmm. And so, but I remember as a kid, we knew something like that was coming out. We were excited when the trailers came on. We were so excited. We were talking about it at school. We were talking about it at church. That's gone now, man. Now you got these damn trailers that are being force fed to you. You got all this garbage on Yahoo talking up all these films that are praising them as being great before they even come out. Just brainwashing people. It's just, it sucks, man. It's like people are so damn sterilized with all this marketing crap. Social media, it plays a big part in what you're saying. The mm -hmm. funness. Social media has helped destroy that, I think. And it's unfortunate because the social media should be there to augment what needs to be put out here to make people excited. Instead, it just tells you everything you need to know. It brags about stuff. It just force feeds all this overhyped. Um, it's just everything is marketing now. And it just, it's sad. It's just not what it used to be. Movie yeah. trailers now suck badly. I hate trailers now. They suck. Yeah, I know they're terrible. And what's maddening is, and I hope that this changes when movie theaters finally reopen. Yes. Why are you playing them in front of the movie? Like, I can watch this at home. Like, I, I, like everybody knows Deadpool 2 is coming out or whatever, whatever movie yeah. you want to sub in there. Yeah. It's yeah. like, play a short film or play a cartoon or... That's why they were called trailers, because they played at the end of the movie. Back yeah. then, you saw the trailers. When the film was done, yeah. they wanted you to you know, check out what was coming up next so you would stay and watch it because everybody would get up during the credits. But we always stayed and saw what was coming next week or the week after next with the cartoon and everything. So no, I mean, now, like you said, they're in the front of the movie and they're just teasing you with all this stuff that, okay, oh, so-and-so's in that. Oh, so-and-so. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm going to go see that. Yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> but no, man, it's just, no, it's, it's not fun anymore. And on top of that, the audiences aren't what they used to be either, man. People are just so shallow and just so disrespectful. They talk, they got their damn phones out. All these things are creating, in my opinion, um, not the death of cinema, but basically what cinema's evolving into for all the wrong reasons, I think. Yeah, I, I think, think we're, so. we're going to learn that, I think we're going to learn that art, for, art forms really only, they have a shelf life. They're, they only, they're only around for a certain time. And, yeah. and thinking and talking about movies in today's, day and age i think about like i think about jazz yeah that's a good example like, good like example. once once like spielberg and scorsese once these guys are gone like people will make movies but it just won't yeah. be the thing i mean people still play jazz i mean there's still right. jazz bands yeah but once people like miles davis and john coltrane and who, whoever right. you want to bring up <clears throat> once those guys are gone those, those guys that took the art form stretched it literally as far as it could go right and, and made it the thing that we now think of as jazz mm -hmm. once they're gone you know that's kind of it for the art form and i really think you know that i think we'll just learn that like oh that was that art form see and it'll be like martin scorsese is like the miles davis you know what i mean like, that, it was no, like that, that's somebody who did that those are great metaphors because there are people that want to be the next Scorsese or Coppola or Lucas, whatever, mm -hmm. but yet at the same time, they're not going to be given the opportunity to sort of meet up to that standard because standards have been lowered so much. Sure, we were talking sure. about the Russo brothers. <laughs> I guess we should. <laughs> the, 
but some of the reviews for the new Cherry movie have been coming out, and apparently mm. people aren't too happy. Some of it, they're mixed. Some people are praising it. Some people are like, eh, eh. But I was telling Mike about how the Russos, deep down, I know they really want to be the next Coppola, the next Scorsese, because the Italian mm. aspect, of, they want that. But I don't know if this industry is going to allow them to do that. No. And it sucks because I hope, the reason, well, the reason why I'm, I'm excited about the Marvel films and all this blockbuster stuff is for one thing only, one thing. You know why? Why? It's eventually going to come back to indie filmmakers again because remember how in the late 80s, early 90s, indie filmmaking came back because it yeah. peaked out because the blockbusters, you know, sort of toppled over? Mm-hmm. That's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Only problem is the quality of the indie films, I think, are going to suffer because me and maybe like, I want to say less than a couple hundred filmmakers in the world choose to shoot film on film. Right. Every other filmmaker, and there's like several thousands of them, are all sold on the digital methods of film, which is great. But there's something about the tradition of celluloid that is, that is dying. That is definitely dying. And I, and I just know people like Scorsese and um, Luke, not Lucas, Spielberg, and a bunch of these other old school guys that are slowly dying, a lot of them don't want to see that go. And the only people you have carrying that now is P.T. Anderson and Wes Anderson mm-hmm. and um, Chris Nolan, <clears throat> a handful of other named directors. But aside from those guys, nobody's doing it. Everybody is just selling out. They're just saying, you know, it's, there's no need to shoot film anymore and da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, well, whatever. But I mean, you're not, I, it's not even, yeah, I mean, the medium's a big part of it. But you're also getting, yeah. you know, when, when you get all these streaming sites and stuff, right. you start getting people's fourth best idea. Yes. You know what I mean? They're like, well, th- this will fit over at Quibi or wherever, whatever, play, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, did you really want to make that? Or did you... That's the way I'm looking at it. Just yeah. another, that's another paycheck. You know, why am I yeah. sitting through this thing that you're not even that... Well, and that's the thing, though. And that's part of it, too. I mean, if, if the director did this not without caring, he just wanted to get a paycheck to pay his mortgage. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to watch this to help you pay your mortgage. And that's it. Because I mm-hmm. like you as a filmmaker, but... At the same time, it's like, well, dude, if you're not going to put 100% into it, why should I waste my $10 to watch this? And, you know, I, and that, I mean, that's the mentality of it because a lot of people that have seen Paper Shadows, they kept saying, man, we can see you put your heart and soul into this. I say, yeah, because it was literally me bleeding making this film. Yeah, yeah. I want to make something that, seriously, I keep thinking over and over again. I mean, like Kubrick, good, good example. I'm no Kubrick, but Kubrick made the films he wanted to be made the way they had to be made because it mattered to him. And even if the scripts weren't great, and he made a few films that didn't have great scripts, mm-hmm. he still made, put 100% into that and he made sure those films had longevity. And that's how every director or producer or writer should be, man. You know, I mean, if you have the option of doing something of quality, why would you want to half-ass that? But I understand you're going to have these, in other words, you put everything you can into it and then when the producers or whoever come on board to say, okay, lose that, lose that, get this, do that. Okay, mm-hmm. it's still going to be in the ballpark of being something special instead of being, oh, well, I can't do this now because you took out my best lead actor and you're taking those pages of the script out. It's like, well, no, man, just you've got to still go all the way. There's no excuses, you know, but I understand. I know production is harder than it was because people are just so quick to just throw in the towel, but it just seems like people don't really care anymore. And I think that's part of the problem. I mean, like I said, I like the idea of a director going out of the way to working with a limited budget to make something great as opposed to someone giving a big budget that's going to do something half-assed that's going to be forgotten in five years. And that's right. every other film being made now within the last 15, 20 years is landfill movies. You know, you're going to, there's, seriously, I have like a couple thousand trailers of films that I remember came out 10 years ago that when they came out, they were hyped up. And now I can walk to anybody and say, hey, did you ever see that so-and-so for my so-and-so? They're like, when did that come out? Mm. Yeah. 
most films are forgotten, man. And it's like a landfill of just forgotten movies, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the digital films are going to be even worse because, you know, there's still no proven format that's going to give these to another generation 100 years from now or 200 years from now because... I mean, most people aren't even thinking about it. I was, I was in a movie right. that premiered at uh, the Austin Film Festival and about a, a year and a half ago, I talked to the director because mm -hmm. they sold it and they sold it to some some distrib distributor who puts it on their website and I think it makes it available on iTunes, whatever. But <laughs> I, I, I said to him, I was like, what's going on? What's with, what's going on with that movie? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, where is it? <laughs> and he's like, well, it's on, it's on iTunes. I was like, yeah, but I mean the action, the movie, where is it? Is it on a hard drive? Is it on, have you backed that hard drive up? Like, I really think of, like, how many of these movies are going to disappear? I know the guy. He's not, he's not backing it up. And if, <laughs> and, and if the company goes under right, or just hits delete for whatever reason, you know what I mean? Like, then what? Where's and all this stuff go? And on top of that, do they really care enough to even try to preserve it or maintain it or to give it to another audience? Because think about it. This guy, you know, what if he makes a some more films and one day someone wants to do a retrospective of his body of work? Yeah, there's not, not going to be retrospectives. That's 100%. Yeah. That's, that's never going to happen. See, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I have all my shorts still. They're on film. Yeah. They're, yeah. On, they're on hard drive. They're on DVD. They're on VHS. They're on, they're on beta masters. I have them all, you know. And if I make anything else, like say with Paper Shadows, whatever, I want to make sure that 100 years after I'm dead and gone, there's still going to be a means to show it somewhere or somehow. Yeah. Period. That's it. Because... Once again, I want something that's going to be available for generations to come and whatnot, you know. So, I mean, because it's, it's just, like I said, it's just nobody really cares. I mean, that film that he made, what was his motivation for making that film that you were in, the one that played in Austin? Um, I mean, for them. For or what, what was no, I mean, for them, I think it was um, because he's also an actor. It was, to, ah. it was to sort of move him into a different acting type. Really. So, basically, it was his show reel, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's cool, you know, there's a lot Yeah, of nothing wrong with that. I'm just, yeah, that, that's what that was about. What's next for Paper, Paper Shadows? What, where, are you, where are you going from here? Um, as of now, we um, submitted to the, uh, believe it or not, we submitted to the Cleveland International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully be hearing from them in the next three weeks or so, four weeks, whatever. <laughs> How are you uh, not automatically in? Well, here's what happened, if you want the truth. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, who do I, who do I have to call here? What, what's going on? Well, here's, here's the deal. First off, the film festival is going through a change. I guess uh -huh. I shouldn't say this on camera. But, I, I, but, um, whatever you don't want, just let me know. But. No, 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 it's okay. You're okay. out there. I don't care. But yeah. the, staff, the, the staff basically is going through a change. And I guess um, the staff that's left, they had their own agenda, which I respect. Um, I decided after a couple of years ago, I was never going to submit to festivals and pay ever. I'm done with that. And a lot mm. of it had to do with what we're talking about because Film festivals now aren't what they used to be 20 years ago. So anyway, I decided, like when I got in Chicago, I was invited to that. I was invited and I was an alumni. I played my films in the past. And um, another festival um, in Switzerland, took, I was accepted to that, but COVID happened, so the festival got canceled. So Switzerland Festival would have been the first premiere, but it didn't happen, so Chicago. Was, but I spent over $500 in submission fees to all these festivals. Nothing. Some of them I don't even think saw my film, and some of them even um, didn't even send me a rejection letter. I didn't get nothing. But yet they keep all saying, oh, we don't do waivers. 
And I was like, okay, fine. But yet I keep hearing all the people getting these festivals and not paying anything. So I decided, okay, that's $500 learning experience, never again. So if mm-hmm. I get to a festival, it's strictly invite me or whatever. <clears throat> and so um, Cleveland International, I spoke to uh, Beth, who ironically was, the, she married Mike and his wife <laughs> for their mm-hmm. wedding. She does the pastor thing. Um, she worked at the festival and she got promoted and everything. So I just don't know what to say, hey, what the hell? So Mike recommended, just call her. So I called her, hey, Beth, can I submit my film through a waiver? Because COVID happened, I don't have any money, I'm broke, da, da, da. She was like, oh, absolutely, sure. And I said, okay, great. So she gave me the number. And I said, by the way, you know, I've had a bunch of films in the festival and I gave her my whole history and she had no idea. And her jaw dropped when she saw my history and connection with the festival. She mm-hmm. said, Robert, you should be in every year. Da, 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 da. I said, well, you know what? I Times have changed, so maybe that'll happen now. But so anyway, so yeah, there, I just submitted to them, didn't pay. I'm looking for other pay, people, for that, for that festival people that are looking to invite me. Right now, the only other thing coming up would be the Walker Arts Center. Um, and once again, this is who you know. This is all who you know. A friend of mine who's a mm-hmm. filmmaker, he just, they just bought one of my films for their archives, one of my shorts. And he's intrigued about Paper Shadows. So he said, once COVID wraps up, he wants to try and organize a screening of Paper Shadows there. And the Walker Art Center, that's a big deal. So mm-hmm. that place, and there's a guy named Greg Zinnemann. He wrote a book about experimental handmade films. And I'm yeah. in his book. Mm-hmm. And he heard about Paper Shadows. And he's interested in booking a screening for me, maybe in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I'm more or less going with the um, art house or the uh, film center route as opposed to festivals. But if a festival wants me to show it or they want to invite me, by all means, I'll do it. Um, the only other place I can think of is the Wexner Center, but they're being kind of flaky. But we'll I, see how I also don't, I think, I think they might be uh, staying low key with that uh, Epstein stuff. Um, well, there's a lot going on with those guys, but we yeah. won't go with <laughs> uh, But aside from them, I'm going to approach the Aero Cinema, you know, Santa Monica. They're interested. Yeah. yeah. Totally. yeah. So yeah. when so will you, that. when will you hear from the Cleveland? Hopefully within the next, what, three weeks, four weeks? Yeah. So by the, I want to say by early mid-March, maybe sooner. Well, you have to let me know. Yeah, I'll definitely have to get in, but I I have to put this on the record. If the Cleveland Film Festival does not put in a film by a Cleveland resident who literally made it with his own two hands, just pack it up and, you know, start start a tennis tournament or something. Like, what are you even doing? (laughs) Well, tell you what, that being said, that's probably every other film center in the country because, um, like I said, um, the few people that read about this or heard about this, they're all agreed that, yeah, it's like, this is something worthy regardless. You know, you, this is just something that you never see anymore. And um, Sundance used to be about this. I was going to submit it to Sundance, but I decided not to. Um, it's just, like I said, there is an appreciation for these kind of films, but there's not enough to where people should go out of the way to reach out to these people. Because like I said, I spent all that money. San Francisco International Film Festival, they rejected it. Mm-hmm. That cost me a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple of festivals in Chicago, outside of Chicago Underground. It was like a bunch of festivals I submitted to, and not a single exception, except for um, that one in Switzerland. And mm-hmm. it makes sense because the European festivals. But um, so, yeah, man, it's just, you know, festivals aren't what they used to be. I mean, and they didn't really care that it was shot on film. They just saw it as being something a little too out there. And they were like, nah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. If I made a straight Afrocentric film, it would have probably gotten in. But because it was so scatterbrain in terms of its ideas and everything in its presentation this would turn off a lot of people but the people that have seen it loved it you know so if they give yeah. it a chance you know and you got you got the next one cooking are you trying the next script well it, like i said this next the script it, it all depends on if the writer producer allows me to modify it because 
to make a long story short, um, you, you know about Tyler Perry, right? You know his movies, mm -hmm. those, those, um, those oddball movies he makes. Yeah, my this script is in the, it's in the oh, yeah okay well this script is in the category of that genre which i'm not really into we they call it the chitlin circuit basically yeah, it was right. like those stage shows you would see on a sunday after church this mm -hmm. script is like that and the guy who wrote this wrote this as a play like that it's a play and um he wanted me to do a film because i guess tyler perry's people approached him about his scripts and he didn't really want to deal with them he wanted to work with somebody local or regional and someone that was very visually interesting and so he knew about me through mutual friends and so he gave me the script that I was interested in because this film, and I'll tell you this little tidbit here, you know, this year is 2021. It is the 50th anniversary in a few months of the hospital being made. They started, oh, yeah, production, sure. on the, they started production on that April 16th of 71. Great film. And that, oh yeah. And that's one of those other things in life that I regret. This is one of my big regrets in life. You know, I had a chance to work with Arthur Hiller who made that. Oh, really? And a film that was unofficially a follow-up to the hospital called Teachers. You ever see that? I don't think I have. Everybody's in that film. It's mm -hmm. Nick Nolte, Joe Beth Williams, Richard Mulligan, Ralph Macchio, Crispin Glover, Laura Dern, um, and like five, six other name actors before they became big. Of course, because it was me marketed as a new Nick Nolte movie. But um, I had a chance to be in that and I never had a chance to. Then I had a few other chance to meet Arthur Hiller through mutual friends. He died before that could happen. So it was one of those things because the hospital is like in my top 10 all-time favorite movie. I love that film. And, and so, and I have a thing about clinics and hospitals anyway, and I, and with what's been going on with healthcare and with the pandemic. So I'm thinking if I could do a film about something like that, I would. And so coincidentally, this guy, and ironically, this guy, his name is Robert. And guess what his last name is? Banks. Bankston. <laughs> his name is Robert Banks. That's his name. I'm thinking this is just too weird. So I'm thinking, you know what? Let me see your script, man. And he showed me a bunch of scripts and I said, ah, you got a film about a you know inner city ghetto clinic and he said yeah that's he said that was a play and i said i read this I said, let, me, let me read this and so i read the script half the script is like what you would see in a tyler perry film and i'm not into that stuff and so mm -hmm. i asked him look dude how much of an issue would it be if i take elements of this out and i remodify this and i make it more where i could he said whatever you need to do whatever you need to do i said in fact let me go ahead and rewrite some stuff already because it wasn't formatted right anyway so he's working on some rewrites he wants me to read it I like some of the ideas he had. However, there's still some stuff in there that I just did not. It's just not me. Now, in fact, remember in Paper Shadows, the scene with the councilman and his assistant who's doing the poetry? Yes. Okay. What if that whole film was all about those guys doing that stuff? <laughs> <laughs> That's what this guy's script is like. It's like about a inner city jokes, black folks being stereotypes and which, you know, I understand he's trying to do something. It's about an inner city clique. This doctor who's a legitimate doc, black doctor wants to start up a practice in his house for the community and everything that goes wrong goes wrong. Plus he's having an affair with an older woman who's one of his financiers. It's just so far, it's like lifetime meets Chitlin circuit. And that's not me. However, if there is a way I can make this film and make it more something that I would really be into, I would do that. And so we're gonna have another meeting after he writes the script and then we're gonna do a reading, an open reading of the script. And that's what I'm going to decide if this is going to fly or not. Because um, I have people that are interested in giving, giving us money to do this on a more formal level. And if we can get like $75,000, hmm. we can make this happen. And we're going to shoot this on 16 millimeter. It'll be shot on film. Great. Excellent. Yeah. yeah the gear is being donated. Um, it'll be um, pretty much um, a straight film. However, it's going to have those Robert Banks elements to it. And a friend of mine who works in the industry, he really insisted I should make one straight narrative, but still have that creative spin to it. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so we'll see, but that's the only other thing coming up. Aside from that, that idea I mentioned about the coming of age biopic about me and those B movies, 
I would like to make a film like that too. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, that's the one I'd like to see. Yeah, I would love to do that. And so, and when when are you and I working again together? <laughs> well, either you come out here, or I come out there, but I'd rather. Come. <laughs> I'd rather go to you. I'd rather be. I'd rather go there. Uh, so, that's great. Yeah. So if yeah, if there's more, you know, I'll uh, we'll do this again. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll talk more about that other potential project because, um, in many ways, if you can envision a ghetto cinema paradiso. That's what this other film would be. I mean, that's something I want to see. So uh, <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah. So yeah, there you go, man. So no, hey, you know, like I said, man, thanks so much. If you have any other questions, you want to email me, that's fine too. Or, or whenever you're ready for the next interview, just let me know. Yeah, we'll do another interview. I, I love, you know, I love you. And I love seeing yeah. you and talking to you. So. Same here, man. And by yeah. fact, I was going to say, can you get Bob Guccio to give him a chance to watch Paper Shadows? I mean. <laughs> I'll try, yeah. I don't know about <laughs> his taste is, I don't know. I don't know if he's, uh, if this is his movie, but. We'll see. <laughs> or any, or if you know anybody else, seriously, if you know anybody else that wants to watch it or you think they might be interested, just let them check it out. Do you know anybody that works at the Beverly or at the American Cinematheque or at the, um, you know? No, I don't know. Anybody, I don't know anybody. The new Beverly is actually right down the street. And uh, I do have to email them because I, I have a, I don't know if they're going to be open in September, but I have a, speaking of trailers, I have a original Spider-Man, Sam Raimi trailer, the one. So do where, I. I have one too. Yeah, yeah, where he's uh. World Trade Centers. Yeah. Yeah, the Trade Centers, and it's the twentieth, you know, anniversary. So that'll cheer the crowd up. But uh, I don't even. I don't know if they're going to be open or not. Yeah, because the plan is, whenever these guys are ready to open, I want to be ready to have this to, to present to say, "Hey, I have a thirty-five print of a feature I made." Because like to the Arrow Cinema, they said, "Yeah," but I haven't spoken with Beverly or. And I, I'm friends with Dennis Bart, Facebook friends with Dennis over at the American Cinema Tech. So I just want to get a venue that embraces celluloid that want to show this. And, and the Beverly, it's funny, um, I know Tarantino owns that. And I actually, mm -hmm. me and him, we actually, I sold him one of my, not one of my films that I made, but I sold him a print of a film that I, that Soldier Blue, I sold him a oh, print yeah. of it. And I was wondering, he might even like this film. There's even bare feet in it, so maybe he'll like it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's got a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I know the theater's great. He's great. It's it's one of the it's if I left LA, it would be probably at the top of things I would miss. Yeah, is yeah. Is that theater? Yeah, that place is so cool. Yeah. Uh, I'd be honored that they would show Paper Shadows there, but we won't hold my breath at all. So. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, Robert. Maybe we'll we'll do this again, maybe in a week or two weeks or something. And I'm about to, I'm about about to piss my pants with a 42 year old bladder. So. Wait till you turn 55.